Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the award-winning radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, the teat upon which the Christian Reformed Church suckles, you can find us online at www.doubtcast.org, or those of you in West Michigan can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, WPRR, 1680 AM, Ada, Grand Rapids. My name is Dave Fletcher, with me in the studio, once again, finally... It's been a while. Yeah, man, talk about it. My fellow doubtcasters, Jeremy Bean. Hello, everybody. And Dr. Professor Luke Gatlin. When you said that we were award-winning, I almost expected you to say like the Concords do, like we're the Michigan's fourth best skeptical <laughs> podcast reunion band. That's not too far from, I think, the level of uh, of our awardliness, but uh, we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, first off, we have more pressing news to talk about. And it's the one news item that everyone in the world is talking about right now, and that's the the disaster in Haiti. Yeah, for anybody who doesn't know, January 12th, a 7.0 strength earthquake struck the capital city of Haiti, and uh, initial reports were saying as many as possibly 100,000 people had died mm-hmm. in the disaster, and now some are saying that the figure might actually be twice that. It's unbelievable. For those of you out there who are looking for a completely non-religious way to give relief to Haiti, um, there's another option. The Center for Inquiry now has a charity of its own. Mm-hmm. The name of it is SHARE. That's Skeptics and Humanist Aid and Relief Effort. And SHARE is now taking donations to send relief aid to Haiti. They are saying that all donations 100 percent with no operating costs retained will be sent directly to the secular aid group Doctors Without Borders. Ah, so Cher is then funneling their money to Doctors Without Borders. Right, but it's still worthwhile to uh, donate to Cher first. Absolutely. Uh, there's this idea out there that atheists and humanists and other free thinkers, you know, really don't give that much to charity, mm-hmm. really don't help to support those types of efforts. And unfortunately, as we have talked about on the podcast before, some of the numbers might actually back that one up. So this is your chance to donate to a very good cause, to help people out, and to also send a message that we care too. That's right. So we would like to offer our support to share. My wife and I are sending a check in, and uh, you know we actually have about ten thousand listeners, ten thousand subscribers to That's Reasonable right. Doubts. And if everybody just gave $10, that's, that's huge. That's $100,000 right. that could be donated just from Reasonable Doubts listeners alone. If you haven't already given, please consider doing so. The link to Share's website will be on our blog, doubtcast.org, and you can also find a link to it on Center for Inquiry's website. It should be pointed out that Share was actually not the original name of the organization. It was at first going to be CFI Care, but it just didn't. (laughs) 
But see if I care really didn't have the ni- a good ring to it. Didn't quite work <laughs> as well. But um bum. It's good to be back, folks. Good to be back. All why right. do the religious people hate us so much? We're see if I care. <laughs> they think we're apathetic. <laughs> see if I care. Uh, well, speaking of people who don't care, um, Pat Robertson. And I have to say, we're certainly not the first people to talk about this. And I have to say, excellent transition, Dave. Hey, that's what I'm here for. Uh, Everyone, luckily, and I applaud the the media for jumping on Pat Robertson for his really horrendous remarks that he made just after uh, this earthquake struck. He said, something happened a long time ago in Haiti, and people might not want to talk about it. They were under the heel of the French, you know, Napoleon III or whatever. Um, <laughs> note here, Napoleon III was born in 1808, four years after um, the Haitian Revolution was over. And in fact, it was um, Henry XVI who was the ruling monarch of France at the time, but it was during the French Revolution. I'm glad Pat fact-checks things with the Lord before he goes on air. Napoleon III or whatever. What are them French guys? Napoleon the dynamite. Yeah. He says that the Haitians got together and swore a pact to the devil. They said, we will serve you if you'll get us free from the French. True story. And so the (laughs) devil said, okay, it's a deal. All right. I've only just kind of heard about this. You're going to have to explain to me, Dave. I I don't even know what this is even referencing. How does Pat Robertson know that they swore a pact with the devil? Well, it's interesting. And and as I've been digging into this, it gets more and more interesting. Um, One thing that I found um, on the site blackandchristian.com, which I check out daily. No, you don't. (laughs) There's an article written by uh, Gene R. Gellin who is uh, Haitian himself. And he says, quote, For quite some time now, several articles on the Internet have mentioned the existence of an iron pig statue in Port-au-Prince as a monument to commemorate Haiti's so-called pact with the devil the Lord through of, voodoo. The Lord of the Flies statue? Yeah, yeah, yes, exactly. So they created an idol to worship? Or? Yeah, well, no, the, the idea is that as part of a um, voodoo ceremony, they sacrificed a pig to the devil. Oh. Okay. There's a few problems with this idea. First off, and, and foremost perhaps, this iron pig statue in Port-au-Prince doesn't exist. It's not there. There is no iron pig statue in Port-au-Prince. This evidence that author after author has been using to as evidence that Haiti made a pact with the devil, here's their sign of their satanic ritual, it's not there. So where did this myth of the iron pig first originate? Here's the real background. Okay, in August of 1791, a group of slaves and, – and, and for those who aren't familiar with the history of Haiti, Haiti is the one country where a slave revolution actually uh, was successful. Yeah, we talked about that in the Darwin episode. That's right. Darwin thought it was a good idea and should spread. Yeah, and um, ironically, one of the things that inspired this, the slave revolution in Haiti was the French Revolution in France. Mm-hmm. The slaves in Haiti, of course, were rebelling against the French. Did okay. they make that movie with Marlon Brando about that burn or something? I don't, I it was don't one know. of the obscure Brando Maybe. movies. Anyway. Okay. So in August of 1791, a group of leaders of this uh, – what would become the Haitian Revolution met. One of them most notably was – Duty Bookman, 
Uh, and, and tradition holds that at this ceremony where they basically said, we're going to revolt, here's what we're going to do, they made a ritual sacrifice of a pig because they are they were of the voodoo religion. Voodoo mm-hmm. is a um, often misunderstood religion. It doesn't actually involve as many zombies as movies would like you to believe. But it oh. does involve animal sacrifice. Okay. Problem is uh, that this story claims that Bookman was a voodoo priest. Only there's no reference to Bookman being a voodoo priest except within this story. And here's, here's really the, the nail in, in the coffin when it comes to the pact with the devil. This is the prayer that tradition holds was offered at this ceremony. Okay, let me read this to you. The God who created the earth, who created the sun that gives us light, the God who holds up the oceans, who makes the thunder roar, our God who has ears to hear, you who are hidden in the clouds, who watch us from where you are, you see all the white has made us suffer. The white man's God asks him to commit crimes, and the God within us wants to do good. Our God, who is so good, so just, he orders us to revenge our wrongs. It's he who will direct our arms and bring us the victory. It's he who will assist us. We all shall throw away the image of the white man's God, who is so pitiless. Listen to the voice of liberty that sings in all our hearts. Surely that is a pact with the devil, is it not? I'm interested that in this case that the God, that the Christian God's on the side of slave owning and the devil apparently is into liberation theology. Well, and that, that would be what, <laughs> what Pat Robertson is saying, right? <laughs> Pat Robertson's suggestion is that, that they were trying to, they made a pact with the devil, this other God, who's, of course, into liberation. I don't know, I, I'm concrete. Just tell me, but like, you know, I'm back, still back on the, le- on the level like 200 years ago. You're a Haitian kid who's living now. Mm-hmm. Earthquake wipes you out. Oh, my ancestors 200 years ago made some sort of pact, and I'm held responsible <laughs> for this? Absolutely. And, and moreover— God just now got around to punishing people yeah, for They that. can't be bothered to free any slaves, but boy, he's pissed if you make a pact with the devil for your liberation. It, 200 yeah. years later. Yeah. And if this, frankly, really nice-sounding God that the Haitians were, were making a sacrifice to at this point, if that was, in fact, the devil— Man, did they get ripped off because they had a 13-year war for independence. You make a deal with the devil, this should be over right quick, okay? It wasn't enough for God that they've been maintained as the poorest country in the in the Western Hemisphere. Right. I, you know what? They've suffered for 200 years now, but I haven't made it clear yet my displeasure, so – yeah. yeah. Can't we do yeah. something tectonic uh, plates? Or? I'm going to send a sign that will be absolutely clear why I'm punishing them. If pigs rain down from the sky, that, that would be a clear sign of, of God's justice. I might be getting on Pat Robertson's side. But, yeah, but he's he's always doing this sort of thing. Every this time a natural new. disaster occurs, he has to s- attribute it to this sinfulness of some particular group that's the on ACLU his cultural hit list. or lesbians or whoever. Yep. I, and I'm just kind of wondering, you know, th- th- this sounds almost like what Luke talks about a lot on the show is uh, this just world belief. I wanted to mm-hmm. say that. Why do you take that from All me? right. Go for it, Luke. I don't know if you guys know, but I do research in psychology of religion. I have heard. Holy yeah. shit. And there's this thing called the just world belief. And uh, it's a tendency, a bias for people to want to believe that good things happen to good people and bad things happen for a reason. So if the disasters happen, it's better to maintain a sense of order, even if it means that you blame the victim rather than just say things are random. Right. So we don't want a little problem of evil issue cropping up here. Uh, right. Natural. Why would uh, why would God 
allow natural evil to exist, so uh, they find a reason for it. Oh, Pat. And he's not likely to stop anytime soon. I do appreciate that everyone in the media has leapt on him, including... uh, I do too. I'm, I'm glad they're. It's really. I'm glad they're pointing this out because really, people like Pat Robertson are their own worst enemies. Right. When they make statements like that, they're they're only doing us a, a service. That's right. And mainstream Christians have very quickly said, "Whoa, he doesn't speak for me." But so have you ever met anybody who watches the 700 Club? I don't. I don't. I must socialize with the wrong people. That. Who, who's the audience? There's plenty of people who watch that, I, but uh, so. but yeah, I gotta say I I haven't met too many. E- even either. living here in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, I'm, I I don't know. If when I was a Christian, me and and all my friends, I mean, thought that guy was a a quack to begin with. And most Christians do. So yeah. to be fair, all right, all right, yeah. Let's move on to something a little more joyous. Yeah, uh, quite joyous actually. Like us and how great we are. We are so great. We're so great, and it's about time people recognize that fact. <laughs> This was actually very exciting for me because the um, the podcast awards um, were announced on my birthday um, last oh, month. And I, I actually nice didn't find out about it until present. the next day because I wasn't listening to the live broadcast or anything. But uh, the podcast award, for those of you who don't know, is a, an award given to podcasts of various categories – we were nominated in the religion inspirational category. <laughs> I know the guy who yeah. uh, nominated us. Do you really? Yeah, Matthew uh, or Matt Smith said he was a he's been a longtime listener, and um, as soon as he heard that they were accepting nominations, he sent in one for us. And I'm pretty sure Matt probably wasn't the only person who did that. Right. But thank you very much for uh, promoting the show. I mean, that's. That's how this show uh, gets more listeners. We don't really spend any money on advertising or anything like that. Um, it's all word of mouth. Yep. And when a listener does, you know, goes that extra mile and helps promote the show, it really does mean a lot to us. And then all of the listeners who went out and voted. That's right. Um, which was uh, obviously a, a, a fair amount. Now, we had in our category, there was not only – a number of uh, uh, religious shows, including Mars Hill. Um, there are a couple of really big religious shows, but there are also some skeptical shows that are in our category that too. That was the other amazing thing about these podcast awards is so many of the shows that were nominated were skeptical shows of, of one nature or in, another. In various categories. Yeah. yeah. We, we won the religious inspiration mm-hmm. category, which is why I wasn't even paying attention to right. this thing. I, I knew we were nominated, but I figured, OK, yeah, uh, that's really cool that we we got in there, but uh, there's no way we're going to win the religion category. Yeah, but, but we did, and we weren't the only skeptical podcast on there. In that co- category, also was uh, Chariots of Iron, Irreligiosophy, I think is how you yeah. say it, and Dogma Free America. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of those were were in the running, uh, yeah. along with religious shows for that category. Right, and in other categories were shows like Skeptoid. Skepticality, Scam School, Mr. Deity. Skeptic's Guide to the Universe won in the educational category. Yeah, congratulations to them too. And the Quackcast won in the um, medicine category, I believe. Yeah, I, I, don't, I think it was health or something Some, like that. Something like that. But yeah, a, skepti- uh, a podcast that is skeptical of alternative medicine. Yeah. I was bummed to see that Radiolab didn't win for um, editing because what is edited better than Radiolab? Oh, really? Were they nominated? They were nominated. The Radiolab is still and my overall, all-time favorite uh, podcast. Yeah. 
So uh, thanks to all of you who voted for us. Congratulations to all of the other podcasts that were nominated in our category and the other skeptical podcasts that were nominated and won as well because uh, that's great. When I I first saw the nominations, I was thrilled to see how many good critical thinking shows were up there. So I mean that's for the new year for 2010. That's a real cause for optimism. Skeptics – Free thinkers of all types are really getting that message out there and there are people who are hearing it and, and appreciate it. And I think we have a God thinks like you that also echoes the same optimism. That's right. I think usually a lot of the stuff that we uh, that I talk about in, my, uh, in the segment uh, is sort of pessimistic because it indicates how people are very entrenched with their beliefs and – it's very difficult to dislodge them. That's right. At least through rational means, you know. Uh, but uh, I came across a study where uh, exposure that indicates exposure to skeptical type messages and, and uh, you know counter uh, counter religious um, uh, information actually does modify religious beliefs, at least in the short term. An author named Sharif is the lead author from the Journal of Cognition and Culture, and the name of the article was The Devil's Advocate. Secular arguments diminish both implicit and explicit religious beliefs. It was an experimental study where people were randomly exposed to either a control message or a passage from uh, Richard Dawkins' lecture. Oh, Wow. So uh, if you've, you know, Dawkins, like in God Delusion and and, uh, and the Blind Watchmaker, will often have passages that he'll dispute the purposeful nature of a lot of creationist or intelligent design theory by saying evolution is works on random mutation and it's, it's you know, not guided by anything. Mm-hmm. So they use that as their control passage. And, and what they did was that uh, I'm sure you guys have uh, heard before when we talk about things like measuring people's attitudes that there's the explicit attitude like you'd get on a paper and pencil measure like – you know, uh, with prejudice, it would be, you know, I don't like minorities or something. Right. But in that sort of research, they also use now implicit measures because of the problems involved in asking people to articulate their views uh, overtly. So implicit attitudes are ones that you yourself might not even know that you hold. So in the case of prejudice, you know, it's hard to get at somebody to say, I dislike minorities. So these implicit tests have cropped up like the implicit association test, which I think I mentioned before. You might have seen that on Scientific American Frontiers, too. This is a, a test that uses reaction time. Instead of asking somebody to explicitly say white, black, good, bad, they actually have the person comparing uh, white faces or white names and black faces and black names. And what they do is they keep switching the categories to where uh, your reaction time and pairing the categories, you have to really like uh, it's very hard to fake your way out. If you have a bias against black people, for example, uh, that you will be slower in categorizing black faces or names with good traits like, you know, happy, positive. These are actually and really so fun tests to take. Yeah. I've, I've taken a couple of them online. And Congratulations. They're amusing. You're, you're so, a racist. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so they, can, they can determine a level of prejudice that, that the person taking the test may not even be self-aware yeah. of. And it does correlate with certain behaviors too. It's not just a, like, you know, your, your, maybe your body language or your posture. Those sorts of things correlate with having an implicit prejudice. So the, the point the, of, for this study is that rather than just asking explicitly about the person's religiosity changing as a function yeah. of exposing, they had the person have a religious implicit attitude. I'm really curious as to how you would yeah. design what we're measuring is the diminishment of religious belief right. in, after reading a, a skeptical yeah. essay. How, how the hell would you measure the that? Metachlorians, actually. <laughs> Metachlorians. <laughs> I knew it was that. Um, yeah, so th- this one, instead of having the white and black, good and bad thing that we talked about with prejudice, what they had is that the two, pol- the, the two attribute categories would be pairing religious objects 
with uh, attributes like, uh, you know, the, the, so the target religious words would be God or heaven and angel. Mm-hmm. But they were asked to pair them either with, w- with the categories like true, genuine, oh. actual, okay. or fake, bogus, <laughs> you know, untrue, phony. Okay. Right, so th- so right. there you'd have the, – the, there they're obviously getting at uh, if a religious concept is paired – if the person slows down a bit with pairing them with true, that would indicate that their implicit religiosity has yeah. slipped down a bit. Hmm. So the long story short was that they, that the group that was exposed to the Richard Dawkins passage – that is, that they read about, uh, you know, the purposelessness and things like that with a typical Dawkins package. When they later on measured, both their explicit and the implicit religiosity had decreased in that. In e- those explicit had decreased too. Yeah, a full out wow. of a full five point, like uh, average of a five point scale, like agree, disagree, mm-hmm. and three yeah. would be neutral. It went down on the average of point. Wow. A full point. Yeah, That's for the people who, who were in the Dawkins condition. After one essay. Yeah. Jesus, now, what if they'd read the whole book? Exactly. <laughs> no now, I'm sure that there, this was a problem. This was right after the experiment. They didn't do like a long-term follow-up to see if they yeah. were, you know, went home and threw away their, their Bible. And so almost certainly these attitudes probably bounced back to some extent as yeah. the person was, you know, back into their worldview. But it does indicate, at least on some level, that there is... Uh, at least temporarily, a dent that's put into somebody. That is, they're not completely tuning out messages. So we mm-hmm. can get our foot in the door. I think so. The, yeah. You know, the only problem I was thinking about when I was reading this, though, was that was that probably the rebound effect as the person bounces back would involve a certain defensive circling of the wagon, right. so to sure. speak. Yeah, it might, might make them stronger. Yeah, so like cognitive dissonance research, w- which we've talked about before, would suggest that when you're under attack, you actually bolster your defenses. Of course. Because you're like ins- essentially saying, my worldview is under attack. I, no, 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 no. And then coming up with things. But what this would suggest is that the reason that my, a person might engage in that is because, at least in the short term, it does dent their views. It is actually their views. happening. Hmm. This relates to something we've said over and over on the show that uh, until now has been mostly anecdotal. There's a lot of people out there who say, you know, why bother arguing with these folks? I mean, really, if somebody's going to believe in creation 6,000 years ago yeah. or something like that, they're not, they're not going to listen to reason. These, it really doesn't do any good. You're never going to change anybody's mind. And we've always insisted that's, that's wrong. Mm-hmm. Some people will change. All of us were once religious and and changed our minds. Several people who've listened to this show uh, have either sent emails or I've found them talking on on uh, chat boards and stuff, mentioning how you know they played the the show for family and it brought up some great conversations. And people are changing their minds. It really does make a difference to talk to people about these things and and to do it in a patient and thoughtful way with, that really has critical thinking in mind. Uh, not just deconverting somebody. And now there's at least a little bit of empirical evidence to, to back up those anecdotal claims. Well, that's encouraging news. Let's, let's keep looking at positive news. Oh, wait, no, we have the UN. <laughs> there's none. None more. That's it. That's really we, – we shot our wad in 2010. <laughs> we won an award. No more optimism. And there's the rest a of the crack year. that we might be able to exploit. That's it. The rest of the year is downhill from here. We, we made a pact with the devil to win the podcast award and now <laughs> we're being punished. It's coming back. The UN has passed a defamation of religions resolution. 
and I believe this is a is a non-binding resolution. It doesn't actually lead to enforcement of the, anything. The clause that institutes the death penalty, that'll be taken up at a later time. Yeah, yeah. Well, joy of joys. It, it is a non-binding resolution. Right. But this is not something that we can really choose to ignore because there are efforts by some in the UN Human Rights Council to actually incorporate this defamation of religions idea into international treaties that would be binding on right. states. So this is a first step. It's not something we can just say, oh, the UN, what good do they do? Mm-hmm. Oh, right. it's not right. binding. No, this is this is part of a movement. And we've talked about this uh, resolution several times on the show in, in the past. If you want more information on, on what it's about, check out our Blasphemy Day special. Right. Um, check right. out our podcast with Austin Dacey. That's right. Uh, he goes into great detail. But yeah, uh, the end result was on December 18th, the UN General Assembly did pass the resolution which outlawed defamation of religions. In other words, the resolution is meant to attack what they call abuses of free speech. Abuses of free speech would really be speech that would be critical of right. religion. It was it, sponsored by the Organization of the Islamic Conference. I was going to say, let's be careful when we say of religion, because clearly the the aim of this is Islam. For all practical purposes, when you look at who's supporting this bill, um, yes, th- this is designed to discourage criticism of right. of Islam. They and don't Sharia care law. about Scientology. I, I'm not so much worried here in the United States. But in Islamic countries and I just saw a black elsewhere. helicopter go by outside. <laughs> there, there could be uh, real problems for people who are outspoken critics of religion, religion in general or specific religions. Yeah, this is going to hit hardest um, the very people that we need to be supporting right now and that is the Islamic moderates, uh, people in these, these countries that are fighting to change and reform Islam – uh, to change Sharia law, to provide more freedoms for women, to provide more freedom for expression in these countries. And, and that's who this is going to affect the most. And actually, uh, today on the show, our guest interview is with someone who is very familiar with the consequences of challenging Islam. Our guest today is Ibn Warak. Ibn Warak, uh, that's not his real name. Ibn Warak is a pseudonym because he is a very outspoken critic of Islam. He's also a major popularizer of Quranic criticism. He is a senior research fellow at the Center for Inquiry, and he is also founder of the Institute for Secularization of Islamic Society. And he is the author of seven books, his most popular being Why I Am Not a Muslim and What the Quran Really Says, Language, Text, and Commentary. And he joined us on the show today to discuss Quranic criticism. Ibn Warak, thank you for joining us on Reasonable Doubts. Well, good morning. Thank you for inviting me. Let's begin with the traditional Muslim interpretation of the Quran. If we were to compare the way a Muslim relates to the Quran, if we were to compare that to, say, a Christian or a Jew in the Bible, whereas a Christian may believe that the Bible was inspired by God, they still nevertheless believe that it was written by human authors, that it had their interests in mind and their understandings of the world. It's just divine revelation entered in there somewhere. But a Muslim's view of the inspiration of the Quran is a bit different. 
Yes, for a for a Muslim, the Quran is the uncreated, literal word of God handed down through Angel Gabriel to a particular individual in time, as say Muhammad. Um, it's uh, essentially a a way of life. It's a guidance for a, for a Muslim. It's it's divided into 114 chapters. Very, very broadly speaking, the 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 longer surahs are at the beginning. The shorter surah surah is just a, a Arabic for for chapter, if you like. But the Quran is not arranged in in chronological order. Mm-hmm. You have, um, it's Muslim scholars who have established which were the earlier surahs and which were the later ones. Which can be quite a challenge for uh, for a Westerner who's not familiar with the Quran at all. Uh, the, the order can be very difficult, and, and many Westerners who come to the Quran may feel like, as, as a literary work, it can be a bit confusing. It can be even a bit dull. And a typical response by a Muslim apologist would be, you're not actually reading it in the original Arabic. What's the significance of Arabic itself as a language to the Quran? Yes, the Quran was revealed in the Arabic language, and it is considered the language of God. Uh, and the the thought is that the Quran is inimitable and untranslatable. Hence, you cannot really fully appreciate it unless you uh, read it or hear it uh, in the original Arabic. This, of course, makes very little sense since the majority of Muslims are not Arabic-speaking. But even for a modern fairly educated Arab. It's not an easy matter to to understand and read the Quran. So even an educated Arab, in fact, really needs a translation because the language of the Quran is sui generis, really. It's, 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 It's on its own. It's often said to be classical Arabic, but in fact, it often betrays Arabic grammar, if you like. It, it, the syntax and the grammar often do not obey the rules of classical Arabic. And this creates a problem then because there are entire passages in the Quran, several of them, that don't have any discernible meaning. Yes, it is. Uh, this is not, of, of course, admitted uh, by... Well, I, I'll, give you, I'll give you a story... Um, I have a friend uh, who's a professor of uh, Islamic philosophy at the University of Toulouse. He went to a conference in Morocco, and a a Moroccan Muslim colleague rushed up to him uh, one day during the conference and said, look here, Professor uh, Urva, look, I found this passage in the Quran, and he read him a passage in, in Arabic, and he says, this does not obey the rules of classical Arabic grammar. And Dominique Urwa said, no, you're right. And, and the, the Moroccan colleague said, well, that proves it's from God. <laughs> it, for him, it, it, anything which uh, in, the, in the Quran, whatever, even if it's ungrammatical, is, is a sign it's, it's from God. But the, the Quran cannot be understood on its own. In fact, translators don't really reveal this. Translators uh, into Persian or into Urdu or into any European language, in fact, have recourse to a collection of traditions known as hadith in in Arabic. 
you need to consult them to understand the obscurities of many words. But even then, if you look at the great commentaries on the Bible, uh, excuse me, on the Quran, for example, uh, At-Tabari, the, the great historian, also wrote an enormous 30-volume commentary on the Quran. He often spends five or six pages on one word, indicating that nobody's really understood this word. Uh, and some scholars, uh, Muslim scholars, have, have interpreted certain passages one way and others in another way, uh, uh, again indicating the obscurity of the original text. Even translations of the Quran, going, trying to go back to the original uh, manuscripts or, or as early manuscripts as we can get. And you say most of them actually come from the Cairo Codex. And so many of these translations really only have one particular set of Arabic texts that they're working from. Uh, but you said there's not a lot of knowledge of where this Cairo Codex actually originated in the first place. Yes. Uh, it, if you mean by codex, uh, some original manuscript in Arabic, it, that, that's not true. The, we don't know how the, the committee uh, at Al-Azhar University in Cairo came up with the final text of the Quran. Um, it's fairly clear that they weren't looking at manuscripts. Hmm. They were look, comparing uh, collections of hadith which talked about the variants and, came, and, and decided to plumb for one version. But there was no manuscript with which they were working. Um, give, give me a brief, just a brief history of, of what does traditional Muslim understanding say about how the Quran was originally compiled after, after Muhammad's death? According to Muslim tradition, the Quran at the time of Muhammad's death, which was 632 common era, there was no Quran as such. It was thought to be in the memories of his companions. Some of it had been recorded and kept by one of the uh, daughters of one of the caliphs, a daughter called Hafsa. But at some stage, many of the early Muslims realized that uh, Muslims in one part of the Islamic world were reciting various uh, chapters in one way and Muslims in, in another part of the Islamic world were re reciting in another way. So different text and there was this confusion. So the traditional picture is very confused, in fact. But if I stick to one particular story, it's that even that is sort of arbitrary. But the most popular version of the, the story is that it's the Caliph Uthman, who asked a young uh, secretary to, to collect all the different verses, uh, record them uh, by questioning companions who had known the prophet, by collecting the pieces of parchment and, and pieces of bones and, uh, and palm leaves, whatever, and actually uh, create the Quran as we have it. This was completed by 650 common era during the reign of Uthman. That's the traditional picture. We're only talking about a couple of decades then after the death of Muhammad. That's right. Yes. That's the traditional account. However, this, this gets complicated because, as you said, even in the, even in the Hadith, there's mention of these, these other variants, these other variants of the Quran. And, and let me just real quickly for our listeners you know, comment on the importance of, of textual variants and any sort of criticism. If you have different variants of a text, 
first of all, this is a challenge not only to, to a doctrine of inspiration. If, if the belief is that God, through the archangel, dictated this to Muhammad, and we have different variants, now we have a question of, you know, what is the real revelation and what's the fake? But this is also important because textual variants allow scholars to track changes over time in belief and doctrines. And so if there really is the existence of variants, that fact in and of itself is a major threat to the traditional way of looking at the Quran for Muslims. Indeed, indeed. Uh, you've summarized it well. The variants do show that the Quran ha- has a history. It really did not uh, fall out of the sky. It took a long time for for the contents to be canonized. And some Western scholars think it, we did not have the final form of the Quran until the ninth century, that's to say uh, two centuries later than the, than the traditional picture uh, would have us believe. The, the variants that we do have, in fact, have been recorded by Muslim scholars themselves. Mm-hmm. And there are even uh, hadith which say anybody who thinks that the Quran that we have is complete is, is an unbeliever. So mm-hmm. the Muslim themselves are, are claiming. Uh, I, have, I quote the, the Muslim sources in my forthcoming book called Which Quran, which concentrates on variants. Uh, and this is quite startling for, for many uh, sort of fundamentalist Muslims, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Or, but they're not based on comparing of manuscripts. So the thought is that these variants, which are recorded in the collection of hadith, were fabricated in order to justify some uh, legal position that um, they wanted to, to promote. For example, the Quran, as we have it, does not mention any punishment uh, such as a lapidation for adultery. What the Quran says is that the the women should be immured until they die or there should be so many lashes, but it does not mention lapidation. Mm -hmm. So the the thought is that the early, uh, maybe 9th century, Muslims had to invent a hadith, a tradition, saying that this verse was originally in the Quran but was lost. And there are all sorts of explanations as to why they got, how they got lost. There are even Muslim traditions, uh, again, from impeccably Muslim sources that I'm talking about, not from some infidel source, mm-hmm. which say that Muhammad had, a f- had forgotten some verses and that he had a faulty memory and that... Uh, but that would also be an indication that certain verses were, which should have been in the Quran are not there because he had simply forgotten to have them recorded. So the Hadith then has served various different political ends over the years. What then does this say about the text of the Quran? Are those, are those manuscripts reliable? Well, the thing is we, don't, we do not have any manuscripts which date earlier than the 9th century, in fact not of a complete Quran, and the manuscripts that do exist, uh, which are fairly early, are in, incomplete, and they show variants which have not been recorded in the Muslim traditions. Hmm. In, incredible number. The, for example, there were some Quranic manuscripts which were found in the loft of a mosque in Sana'a in the Yemen in the 1980s. And so far, very little 
work has been done on these, but the the, the order of the the chapters is different. The uh, the verses uh, don't uh, match with the Cairo Quran. There are all sorts of anomalies, orth- orthographic differences, and so on. So this is a very young science at the moment. Uh, Islamic scholars of Islam, but even in the West, have been rather reluctant to look at manuscripts. There is not even a comprehensive catalog of all the manuscripts, even in the Western universities. Uh, and to me, that's mind blowing. I, I mean, I can't, being familiar with biblical studies, I, I can't conceive of scholarship investigating a text like this and not wanting to get deeply into the manuscripts, not not examining the manuscript evidence. Yes, it is, it is a very, very odd phenomenon. Um, it is very peculiar to Islamic studies um, because I think the whole, the whole attitude to the study of Islam has been very strange right from the beginning. This kind of skepticism that we had regarding the Bible, you know, all the great German higher biblical criticism of the 19th century, there was somehow, well, there was initial skepticism of the sources in the works of the Germans uh, on Islam, but this somehow stopped dead around about the time of the First World War. Then from 40s and 50s onwards, you had scholars like Professor Montgomery Watt, who Edinburgh University, he wrote a highly praised two-volume biography of Muhammad, highly praised even in the Islamic world. A brilliant scholar, he was in fact my, my professor, he accepted the whole traditional framework that had been passed on by the Muslims, and he did not wish to be too skeptical because he saw mm. Islam as a sister religion. Montgomery Watt himself was an ordained Episcopalian minister. He still gave uh, sermons right up to his last day. He died at the age of 97, even in his 90s. He was still giving uh, sermons in, in his local church. So there was this feeling that uh, Islam had to be protected particularly in the 50s, from the encroachment of godless communism. Hmm. Because the Arab world then, of course, was pulled uh, between the two superpowers. But there was this great fear amongst the scholars like Montgomery Watt that uh, Islam would suffer on the onslaught of, of, of communism. So they were, there was a tendency not to be too critical have attitudes changed today? Unfortunately, what happened in the 60s, of course, and 70s onwards, uh, was a political correctness set in. So this reinforced the earlier attitudes of not uh, offending the sensibilities of Muslims. Why they are more important than the sensibilities of Christians, I don't know. Hmm. After 9-11, the situation was even more politically correct vis-a-vis Islam. So you have uh, scholars applying self-censorship. They even refuse to allow the republication of some of their earlier works, which were highly critical of the Hmm. traditional picture. But there are a handful of scholars and critics who are not shielding the Quran from criticism. They are trying to apply the same type of standards that we would apply to the uh, Christian New Testament or the Hebrew Bible, Uh, yourself being one of them. And so what, what are some of the things you are finding there? 
I I am just a kind of popularizer. I try to do synthesis uh, of the works of the the real scholars. Uh, I have a, a much more modest role, but I do enjoy working with with a group of scholars in Germany, for example, um, centered on the work of Christoph Luxemburg, who wrote a book in German which came out in the year two thousand, which purported to show that many parts of the the Quran, which incidentally his colleague at the same university, Gerd Puin, once said that 20% of the Quran makes no sense. Um, Luxembourg, Christoph Luxembourg, in his book, uh, suggested that the obscurities of the Quran were due to the fact that many of the words that they had taken to be Arabic were in fact Syriac, or they had been badly translated from the Syriac. And if we reverted back to the original Syriac, we would get a better reading. And he shows of, of, you know, many, many examples that he, his reading makes much more sense in the context. And often the, the, the meaning, change in meaning is very subtle. Mm-hmm. It's not something outrageous, uh, the Quran doesn't end up by saying something really totally absurd. Or, and that's why it is even more convincing. Um, but the, 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 the implications for this is what on earth is going on? Why, why is it? Why are there so many Syriacisms? Why are there so many words of Syriac origin in the, in the Quran? If Allah himself speaks Arabic, I mean, this is the divine language. Now, this, this throws all of that into question, including the history and biography of, of Muhammad. Now, now we have to ask the same question we have for Jesus now. What, what is the historical Muhammad versus the Muhammad of later commentators? The tr- problem, of course, with what we know about Muhammad comes entirely, entirely from Muslim sources, which are incredibly late and very tendentious. That is to say, the earliest scholar we know who wrote a biography of Muhammad was somebody called Ibn Ishaq, who died uh, about 120-odd years after Muhammad. But even his work is only available to us through a recension kept by one of his pupils called Ibn Hisham, who died over 200 years after Muhammad. So that's one problem, is the lateness of the sources. Secondly, if you read it carefully, you notice it's full of formulaic sayings. It's full of what what scholars call topoi, that's to say sort of stereotypical situations. Muhammad behaves as, as the Muslims thought he should behave because they feel that all prophets behave in the same way and that they encounter the same difficulties. And the suspicion was, and this is argued at great length in an exhilarating book called Hagarism by Patricia Crone and Michael Cook, written in the 1970s. They argue that the portrait of Muhammad that we have is really a calc. It's, it's on the life of Moses. Hmm. There's a, there are striking similarities. You have a prophet, Moses, Muhammad, you have an exodus and a hijra. Hijra is, in fact, word for exodus, which when Muhammad went from Mecca to Medina. 
and then you have a sacred mountain, Mount Sinai, and Mount Hera. Where Muhammad first receives a a revelation is on that mountain. That's right. And then you have a sacred city, for the the Samaritans at least, is Shechem, uh, and then you have uh, Mecca. And the rest of the the, the biography, uh, it it was argued by, especially by a a, uh, Belgian priest who lived and worked uh, in, in, in Lebanon, who had a incredible mastery of the Arabic language. He uh, argued that large parts of the biography of Muhammad were fabricated in order to explain obscure passages in the Quran. By putting the Quran together with the life of Muhammad, they couldn't explain away the obscurity, so they had to invent in the minutest details. You had to have a, a a non-referential passage in the Quran with indefinite articles or uh, pronouns, and you don't know who they refer to. But the Quran takes a passage like that and invents a story around it. Sorry, the the biography takes the the, uh, passage like that from the Quran and then uh, invents a story in order to explain why this particular verse, why and when, this particular mm-hmm. verse was revealed. If you just look at the Quran itself, there really aren't all that many references to Muhammad at all. No. There's, uh, in fact, uh, where Moses is referred to 136 times, Muhammad is referred to four times by name. And on and, and one occasion, if you, if you count that as the fifth, he, he is referred to as Ahmad, which is really uh, from the same root, Hamada. HMD, if you like, uh, the, the, the consonantal roots. But uh, it's not certain that this isn't, in fact, not a, 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 a term, the praised one, and not a, a proper name. If, if you look at it then from this angle now, where Muhammad's contribution is, is somewhat suspect, we can start making sense of, of other inconsistencies in, in the Quran. For example, situations in the Quran where it seems to be that uh, people are praying to Allah, not receiving a revelation, but they're actually talking to Allah. Portions that appear to be spoken by angels, uh, not by God. Or, for example, the tradition says that this revelation was received through Gabriel, but there's other passages that can only be explained if it's a it's an actual person meeting face to face with God. Right, right. There are, there are several passages like that. Of course, the the, the first chapter, so-called Fatiha, uh, which is a, more or less the equivalent of the Christian Lord's Prayer, uh, is addressed to God. But even if you assume, and this is the ploic, which the apologist of, of of the Quran, if not Islam would use is, well, we we have to assume that there is a huge opening, inverted commas, at the beginning of the Quran, and then huge close, inverted commas, at the end of the Quran. In other words, everything in between is uh, supposed to be God talking directly to Muhammad. But this doesn't, doesn't work, because there are passages where it says uh, kala, meaning he said, meaning 
God said. So you have, if you assume that the at the beginning of the inverted commas, at the beginning of the Quran, yeah. God says, and then whatever, the, you get a tautology. God says, God says, or God says, he said. It doesn't make sense to, to assume that. Right. It's awfully redundant. Usually it's you totally, would think if God starts to say something, then what before what was before that wasn't necessarily spoken by right. God. So that's, to, to, yes, it's totally tautologous. Yes, indeed. So all this then begs the question, who really did write the Quran? There are inconsistencies with the idea that, that Muhammad could have written it. And you mentioned it appears that this may have come first from texts in, written in Syriac. Is there any evidence in the Quran or external to the Quran that may give us a clue where these stories originated? Yes, we, we've been able to track down the, some of the sources. Uh, we have no knockdown argument, but we do have a clear idea of the, the sources of the stories about uh, Moses, for example. It comes from obviously the Old Testament, but also from the Jewish, uh, the Jewish commentaries the, mm-hmm. you know, on, on, uh, on, on Genesis and, and so like on. Like the, the Talmud or the Midrash? Talmud, Midrash, all the Haggadah and so on. Mm-hmm. That's, that, that was shown very clearly by a great scholar as early as 1832, I think it was. First came out a book by Abraham Geiger, which is available in English, um, fortunately, called um, Judaism. It was translated as Judaism and Islam. The original German title meant what has Muhammad taken from, from Judaism. There are some passages in the Quran that really do seem to be incomplete. They have either random facts in there that aren't really explained or they're missing some sort of detail. And then if you actually locate the stories in the, the Hebrew texts, that they are taken from, you see the rest of the context. That's indeed true. For example, some of the stories are taken from the, the Old Testament, but also obviously in part inspired by passages in, in, in the Haggadah. And, and, and. For example, the story of Joseph and his brothers the, the version in the Quran is um, difficult to understand because at some stage he he's given a knife by um, the Pharaoh's wife and one doesn't really understand why suddenly this knife should appear when in fact if you go back to the original Hebrew version you realize that he was earlier given a, a knife in order to cut the apples that that he had also been been given, and that that explains the the, the sudden appearance. But the, this part is somehow left out in the Quran, and it's is very puzzling. There are other parts like that. For example, in the story of uh, Cain and Abel, there are bits not left unexplained. You have to really go back to the original Hebrew to understand fully. And so if, if you're taking an interpretation, which is this has been literally dictated by God, it's really hard to explain those facts away, whereas somebody who's more of a redaction critic is going to see right away what's going on here. Uh, sources have been edited together. The, these prior – or either that or prior, prior sources are informing this new text. Yes, yes. No, it is clearly uh, somebody – I think also it's clear that somebody was re- working with a written text – Somebody was manipulating an already written text. So mm-hmm. I think that's also fairly clear now. 
then we also know that some of these stories about Jesus in the Quran come from Christian apocryphal literature. We've managed to track down some of the stories. This is a very exciting area of research. I've tried to collect all the apocryphal literature that exists from that sort of period uh, between uh, 150 B.C. to about 400 A.D., uh, or Common Era. And uh, there are all sorts of literature which hasn't really been properly uh, looked at. Um, Then we also know there are some stories like the story of uh, Alexander the Great comes from a legendary life of uh, Alexander in Syriac, which uh, was written round about the 6th century, maybe 7th, early 7th century, I don't know. It's it's, uh, again indicating that the Quran could not have existed completely by 650 if this had a direct influence. There's a lot of uh, speculation. There needs to be a lot of careful study. But the most exciting work is that of Luxembourg, who we now have to explain how this, the, the, the Syriac uh, came into to the Quran. According, uh, Luxembourg has said, he's fairly convinced that the uh, some of the passages in the Quran come from a text which was in Syriac and then badly translated into Arabic. And this is very... Uh, Interesting, and and, uh, two, three people have independently come to this conclusion, and it has yet to be uh, absorbed. People don't really know what to make of this this discovery, if it is a discovery. I don't want to be too dogmatic. Uh, It's still, this area is still in a state of flux, but it's very, very exciting, and I think many of the re-readings that Luxembourg has done are very, very plausible. And this is opening up new avenues now for for research, uh, new things to look into. Yes. When he first wrote the book in 2000, Luxembourg was vilified and he he, he, all sorts of ad hominem attacks. But nine now, now 10 years later, he's getting far more acceptance amongst serious scholars at, at Cambridge in England, at Oxford in England. Harvard, Cornell. There was a conference just last year at the University of Notre Dame which invited uh, Luxembourg to give a, give a talk, and many of the other talks were inspired by the work of Luxembourg. And then this year, actually, the university in, in Paris, the Sorbonne, the most fa- the famous university, they're giving him the floor for two whole days. Excellent. And and the extraordinary thing is that the, the scholar who's invited him to do this is is a Tunisian, so he's very excited by the by the work of Luxembourg and uh, absolutely delighted that that he's coming to talk. And one of the incidentally one of the other scholars who came to the Notre Dame conference in April in last year is uh, Munta Yunis, is uh, a Palestinian Muslim who finds Luxembourg's work totally convincing, and his work applied Luxembourg's method to various parts of the Quran. He's, he's at Cornell University, so he's a very respected scholar. So there's reason for optimism that we might soon have a robust and very academic 
Quranic criticism. Yes. The, the, it sounds like the groundwork is being laid right now. Yes, indeed. Well, you've played a, a, a large role in bringing that information out to the rest of the public and I wanted to thank you for everything you're doing in that area, perhaps even at risk to yourself. But I wanted to thank you for that and thank you for joining us on Reasonable Doubts. Thank you very much. Okay, we're going to wrap it up this week with a props to both DJ Grothy and the James Randi Educational Foundation for their recent, I don't know, Marriage of Minds. Uh, DJ Grothy, uh, formerly from the Center I hope for it was a gay marriage. <laughs> of course, how it's could a it not par- A domestic partnership of mine. And, and those who are going to complain, I point that out because DJ yes. wants people to point that out yes. as much as possible. DJ, DJ has actually encouraged us to drop in as many gay yes, jokes as possible. Yes, he is loud and proud. And so DJ is the new president of the James Randi Educational Foundation. Um, DJ's been on our show a couple of times, good friend of the show, an important figure at CFI for a number of years now, host of Point of Inquiry. Um, and now he's running the JREF, which is great for both DJ and the JREF. So congratulations to both. Yeah, I'm going to really miss DJ um, just because how involved he's been with uh, the, the local centers and everything. He's a really great guy. Um, but I, I'm excited about this because he's a really good fit for the JREF. Absolutely. A magician, mentalist, skeptic and, and a, an incredible – what people don't always realize but an com- incredible community organizer. Mm-hmm. Those are his skills behind the scene that people don't usually see. And so this is going to be really exciting. Right. Also kind of interesting is now we got an inside man. That's true. Who's organizing the, uh, the TAM conference. It, what it, do you guys think about possibly I, entertaining the thought of maybe conceivably possibly, going to TAM this year in Vegas? I have never been to TAM. I have, in either. fact, never been to Vegas. What about you, Luke? What's TAM? Is there any possibility getting you out of the house to go to Las Vegas for a skeptical conference? Um, probably not. <laughs> I don't go out much. That's Luke. Well, we'll see if we can change Luke's mind. That's right. That's going to do it for us this week. You can find us online at www.doubtcast.org. Email us at doubtcast at gmail.com. Find us Facebook, Twitter, or Zazzle. Someone just bought another T-shirt. It's very exciting. We've sold three. We have. Um, at slash doubtcast. Um, and a quick note, thanks to Sean out there, um, who's a big fan of the show, and his girlfriend gives me hot chocolate and bagels when I'm at work. So... <laughs> Uh, I told her I'd give you a shout out. A shout out. So, Sean, um, keep listening. Thanks for getting her to listen to. Which means you need to now answer all the requests for shout outs. Absolutely, uh, I'll take on, on the show and, and explain why we're not going to be doing that. Personal regularly. shout outs are okay if someone comes up to me personally. Oh, it's kind of biased against our overseas listeners, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Screw them. Learn English. My name's Percy, and I live in the Outer Hebrides. I was wondering if you could. <laughs> Possibly just say hello, hey. Percy, or something like if that. If you make me hot chocolate, you get shout-outs. That'll be our rule I from could now on. send you a pint of bitter if you would shout me out. Hey, people are going to send us gifts. I'll shout-out. I'll shout-out whatever I want to shout-out. Okay. And that's going to do it for us this week. We'll be back next time with more of your Skeptical Guide to Religion. 
catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission.